Well, last week we were introduced, or maybe it was the week before, last couple of weeks we've been taking a look at, uh, yeah, I guess it's been the last two weeks, we were introduced to Gideon. Remember Gideon? He uh, was hiding out by the wine press, threshing wheat when he should have been up on top of the hilltop, and he was kind of scared, and the Lord came, an angel of the Lord came to him and told him that he was great, and he was going to use Gideon to deliver the nation Israel or his, from the, from the uh, tribe of Midian or the Midianites. And of course, there was a lot of doubt in Gideon's mind, and he wasn't sure that he could be, he was the right guy. You know, God really confirmed what he wanted to do through Gideon, but, but all through this process, we've kind of watched as Gideon has just been, he's been like this, this ordinary guy that God's using to do extraordinary things. He really didn't have it in him. He wasn't what you would call a natural born leader, but yet as he responds to the call of God, God moves on the hearts of the people to then bring them alongside Gideon to be able to accomplish what they've accomplished. Remember that he was going to battle, and the Lord said, Gideon, you've got too many men. The enemy had about 120, I think it's about 135,000 men, and, and Gideon had about 32,000, and the Lord said, no, you've got too many. Go on down, get rid of them. Ask them, anybody that's afraid can go on home. Well, I, I think he lost 22,000 men that day. And he said, well, take them down to the water, let them drink. And anybody that laps like a dog gets down on their face and drinks like a dog would out of a bowl, send them home too. And then here's Gideon left with just 300 people. And he's going to face an army of 135,000. But he comes up with a plan. All right, everybody, grab your torch and your pitcher and your trumpet, and we're going to battle. So they surround the army. They've got their torch and their pitcher and their trumpet. The 300 men surround the Midianites. They blow their trumpets. They break their pitchers, which were probably covering their torches. And the Midianites are scared to death. And they take off running, literally fighting amongst themselves. And we think, wow, look what God is doing. With just 300 people, he's going to destroy an entire army. And yet we doubt sometimes, can the Lord really do something with me? Does he re- can he really use me? Yes, he can. He doesn't need much. All he needs is a willing heart. So we pick up in our story, in Judges chapter 8, Gideon has the Midianite army on the run. And we see in verse 4, Judges chapter 8, verse 4, when Gideon came to the Jordan, he and the 300 men who were with him crossed over, exhausted, but still in pursuit. So Gideon and all his men are still intact, all 300 of them. They've come to the Jordan River, which is the edge of the land of Canaan, and they're getting ready to cross over. So they actually literally cross over the Jordan River in pursuit of the Midianites. Now, do you remember what was on the east side of the Jordan River? If you were with us, there was two and a half tribes that said, no, we don't want to go into the promised land. We'd rather make our home here on the east side. The tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Gad, and then half the tribe of Manasseh. So they're getting ready to cross over into their territory. And I find it interesting. Look at the odds. Look at the numbers here. Gideon's got 300. We're going to read in a little bit that they're chasing 15,000 men. 300 versus 15,000. Now, I didn't do the math, but that's not very good odds in a one-to-one com- hand-to-hand combat situation, which they would be in. 1,500 versus or 15,000 versus 300. But I want you to look at, think about the hearts. The heart of the 300 men are, let's go get them, the Lord's with us. The heart of the 15,000 men, well, they're scared to death. They're scared to death. They're running from something that they didn't know it was 300 men behind them. They didn't know they were only being chased by 300 men. If they knew it was 300 men, what do you think they would have done? 
turned around and whipped them probably because they had 15,000 of them. But they were in fear because they thought there was more. They thought there was more. And as I, as I read that, I wondered, wow, is it possible for us in our life to be running, to be afraid of something we think is much greater than it really is? And I thought, yeah, it really is possible. We could be on the run in our life. There could be something that's scaring us. There could be something we're fearful of. And we think it's a whole army, but it's really only a few people. I thought, man, I don't want to be that way, Lord. I want to be like, the, I want to be like Gideon and his army. I want to know what the odds are and still be pressing forward. I want to know that we're outmanned, we're outgunned, we're out, out everything, but we're not out God. We have God on our side. If we have God on our side, we can do anything. Then what did we just sing? The first song that we sang. It wasn't that one, if, if God is with us, who can be against us, right? That's what, that's what Gideon's living. If God is for me, who can be against me? If God is for me, who can be? Nobody's the answer. If we're walking in obedience to God, we don't have to worry about the opposition. But we could be on either side of that. We could be pressing forward with the Lord in circumstances that seem impossible, or we could be the ones that are on the run. We could be running from something we're scared of, something the Lord's called us to do. And Now, the Lord didn't call them to, to run, but he, he, he's the one that put it in their heart. He put fear in their heart. But as we relate that to our own life, I think that it's possible that we could be on the run from something. And I think we need to stop and realize who our God is and realize that we're children of the King. We're, 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 child, we're, we're a child of God. He's on our side. We don't have to be on the run from anything. And instead, let's turn it and be like Gideon and his army. We're going to press forward in the strength of the Lord, not in our own strength. So here he is. He's crossing over the Jordan River. He's going over to the east side. And then in verse 5, it says, Then he said to the men of Succoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me. For they're exhausted. And I'm pursuing Zabah and Zalmana, kings of Midian. And the leaders of Succoth said, now there's a, note the sarcasm here. Are the hands of Zabah and Zalmum now in your hand that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon comes into the land of Succoth and he says, hey, would you give some food to the guys behind me, the 300 guys behind me? We're tired and we're hungry and we're in, we're in pursuit. We're in pursuit of those, of those Midianite kings. We're going to get them. And then he comes to the, then the leaders of Succoth say, well, you don't have them in your hands. We're not giving you any food. What if, what if you don't prevail against them? This is their own people. The city of Succoth was a city given to Gad. These are Israelites that are doing this. This isn't like other people in the, in the this is the same people. This is, this is Israelites. This is from the tribe of Gad. And the word Succoth means booths or shelters. So you can see when Gideon comes here and he says, wait a minute, my own brothers and sisters, my own people are now turning their backs on me. But when we studied that, do you remember what happened to those two and a half tribes? They kept drifting farther and farther and farther and farther apart. And now here we are, just a few short, maybe a hundred or so, a little over 200 and some years later, now they're disassociating with the tribes on the other side of the Jordan River. The tribes in Gad say, no, we're not going to help you. We're not going to help you. And look what, look what Gideon says. This is the quiet guy, remember? Verse uh, 6, 
or verse 6, the leader said, leaders of Succoth said, are the hands of Zabah and Zalmanah now in your hand that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, for this cause, when the Lord has delivered Zabah and Zalmanah into my hand, then I will tear your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. Notice his response. I like it. Way to toughen up a little bit, Gideon. You're not going to help me. I'm going to tear your flesh from your bones with the briars of the, of the wilderness. Literally, he means, I'm going to kill you guys. You're not going to help me? I'm going to kill you. They weren't really worried about it. But then he goes to the next town. So he also spoke with the men of Penuel, saying, when I come back in... Oh, wait, I'm sorry. Verse uh, 8. Then he went from there to Penuel, and he spoke to them in the same way. Hey, will you help us with some food? And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered him. Basically, we're not going to help you. So he also spoke to the men of Penuel, saying, when I come back in peace... I will tear down this tower. Now, Penuel, that word means face of God. That's what it means. That's where Jacob was when he struggled with the man of God, or the angel of God, or what possibly was Jesus Christ, and he knocked his hip out of socket, said, I won't let you go until you bless me, and he changed his name from Jacob to Israel. That's where it was. That was where it was in Penuel. Genesis uh, 32. Verses 22 to 32, you can read about it there. So the, these are, this is Hebrew places that they're turning their backs on him. So Gideon says, when I come back in peace, I'm going to tear down this tower. I'm going to tear down this place. Now, he picks up in verse 10. Now Zabah and Zalmanah were at Karkor, and their armies with them, about 15,000, all who were left of the army of the people of the east. For 120,000 men who drew the sword had fallen. So right now, these 300 men, 120,000 are dead. It's nothing short of a miracle, right? But there's still 15,000 that are running. Gideon went up by the road of those who dwell in tents on the east of Nobah, and he attacked the army while the camp felt secure. 300 men. Can Can you imagine what that would look like? As you're coming into the camp of 15,000 people, so picture a crowd of about 15,000. I mean, think about, have you ever been to an event or a stadium or something where there's about 15,000 people? Now picture a crowd of about 300, and you look down and go, hey, let's go attack. That's not very good odds, but, but they know the Lord's with them. They've seen the Lord work, and that's why they're able to continue on. They've, they see what God's doing. So they, 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 they attacked because the camp felt secure. We're insecure. we got 15,000 people. In verse 12, when Zabah and Zalmanah fled, he pursued them, and he took the two kings of Midian, Zabah and Zalmanah, and he routed, and he routed the whole army. Then Gideon, Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from battle with the ascent of Harris. So Gideon routes the entire army, delivering Israel from underneath the hand of Midian. Amazing. The guy that was shy, the guy that was quiet, the guy that was scared, the guy that wasn't even sure if he was doing the right thing, the guy that wanted to put the fleece out twice, the guy that called, blew the trumpet and then put the fleece out because he wasn't sure, God, are you sure this is what you want me to do? Are you sure, God? Are you sure this is, all right, make the fleece dry, make the fleece wet. As he does all this, God has used him all because he was willing to just take the step forward. Didn't have to do it. Didn't matter that he was scared. He was willing to go. He was willing to obey. Now, let's look at Gideon as he 
deals with the two cities that he just dealt with. Verse 14, And he caught a young man from the men of Succoth and interrogated him, and he wrote down for him the leaders of Succoth and its elders, 77 men. And he came to the men of Succoth and he said, Here are Zabah and Zalmana, about whom you ridiculed me, saying, Are the hands of Zabah and Zalmana now in your hand, that we should give bread to your weary men? He took the elders of the city and the thorns of the wilderness and the briars, and with them he, he taught he taught the men of Succoth. He taught them, or he disciplined them. Then he tore down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. So he takes the kings that he catches. He goes back and he goes, here they are. The guys that you, you, guys that you wouldn't feed me, you made fun of me, you ridiculed me, here they are. Now I'm going to, I like the language in the New King James says, I'm going to teach you. I'm going to teach you. But literally, it means he disciplined them. It means he took them, probably did what he said, and took briars and beat them and then ended up killing them. This is his fellow countrymen that had turned against him. Same thing happened in the neighboring city of Penuel. Or Penuel. The same thing happened in the neighboring city where he said, I'm going to tear down the tower that Jacob had probably built. I'm going to tear it down. I'm tearing down your tower, and I'm going to wipe out your city. It's amazing how far they had slipped, how far they had gone as they integrated with the, with the people that they were dwelling among, not keeping themselves separate, that they weren't even willing to help their brothers anymore. Gideon tears them down. And then he said in verse 18 to Zabah and Zalman, these, the, these are the Midianite kings, what, king of, what kind of men were they, they, were they whom you killed at Tabor? Remember Barak, that was back at Tabor. So they answered, as are you. They're Israelites. So were each, so were they. Each one resembled the son of a king. Then he said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had let them live, I would not kill you. And he said to Jether, his firstborn, rise, kill them. But the youth would not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still, youth, still a youth. So Zabah and Zalmanah said, rise yourself and kill us. For as a man is, so is his strength. So Gideon arose and he killed Zabah and Zalmana and took the crescent ornaments that were on their camels' necks. So I like this. It's interesting. Gideon asks the kings, hey, back when you were at Tabor, the people that you killed back there, who were they? He said, they were like you. They all resembled the son of a king. It had anything to do with Israel being governed by God. They all resembled a son of a king. What'd you do to him? I killed him. Well, because you killed them, I'm going to kill you. The Bible does speak an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life. So he kills them all. Or he tells his son, hey, son, why don't you go kill him? And the son says, no, he's a young man. He said he's still a young man. He doesn't go. And then the kings kind of give it to Gideon a little bit. They harass him. Rise yourself and kill us. For as a man is, so is his strength. So Gideon arises and kills him. And does, does what he needs to do. And then in verse 22, the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, both you and your son and your grandson also, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. This is interesting. The men of Israel, the people of Israel, say to Gideon, hey, Gideon, won't you be our king? Won't you rule over us? You and your sons, let it, you be the ones that lead us. Now remember, if you remember last week, Ephraim, 
Remember what Ephraim said? Why'd you go to battle without us? I don't think that Gideon was, I don't think it was the whole nation Israel that was telling Gideon or asking Gideon to rule over them. But Gideon's smart. This is the first time that Israel's asking for a king in the scriptures. Would you be our king? And look what Gideon says. Verse 23, Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Israel means governed by God. I'm not going to rule over you. My son's not going to rule over you guys. Let God rule over you. Oh, the application we could make there for our own life by asking the question, who's ruling over us? Who's ruling us? Is the Lord really ruling over us? Are we ruling over ourselves? Who decides? Is it the Lord that's ruling over us? It's a good question for us to ask. Gideon then says to them in verse 24, I would like to make a request of you that each of you would give me the earrings from his plunder, for they have golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. So they answered, we will gladly give them. And they spread out a garment, and each man threw into, the, into it the earrings from his plunder. Now the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, beside the crescent ornaments, pendants, and purple robes, which were on the kings of Midian, and beside the chains that were around the camel's neck. So Gideon says, hey guys, great victory today. I just have one request. Can I have the earrings? Will you guys, will you just give me the earrings for every, just, just, and they, they're going to answer, sure, we'll give you the earrings. So we read 1,700 shekels. Most people believe that's around 50 pounds of gold. 50 pounds of gold. Now think about that. Gold, 1,200 bucks an, or 1200 bucks an ounce now, 50 pounds, 16 ounces in a pound. Somebody had a calculator, you can do the math. It's not cheap. Not cheap. A lot of money. But Gideon, what, Gideon, why do you want to do that gold? What's going on with the gold, Gideon? Look what he says. Then Gideon made it into an ephod and set it up in his city, Ophrah, and all Israel played the harlot with it there. It became a snare to Gideon and to his house. Thus, thus Midian was subdued before the children of Israel so that they lifted their heads no more. And the country was quiet for 40 years in the days of Gideon. A lot going on in that little section. Gideon takes all the gold and he makes an ephod. Well, what's an ephod? It's this breastplate that the priest would wear. He makes a golden ephod. And he makes it up and he sets it up. He sets it up. He made it into an ephod. He set it up in his city. And then all of Israel played the harlot with it there. They began to worship the golden ephod that Gideon had made. Kind of strange, isn't it? In the time of battle, they'll rely on the Lord. But here in the time of 40 years of peace, they're worshiping this golden ephod. Sometimes the real danger of slipping away is in a time of peace or a time of blessing or a time when things are going good in life. A time when, you know, because when things are going tough, when there's issues and when there's things going on in your life that are problems, whether it be problems at school or friends or family or sickness or health, it, it, it's easy to draw close to the Lord. You need His strength. But when you're living and operating in your own strength, day after day, week after week, you don't really need it. 
That's where the danger lies. It's the times of peace that the greatest danger lies. Gideon said, I don't want to be king, but I want to make a golden ephod. I want to, what did he really do? He set up a memorial to what God had done. He took what God had done and he wanted to make something, make something for it. He, he, wanted to, he wanted to set up a monument of some sort. Now I found this interesting. Think about this for a minute. God wants to accomplish something. He uses a man to do it. He uses men to accomplish his will, right? He doesn't need us, but he likes to use us. So God uses a man to do something. That man takes what he's doing for the Lord and it turns into a ministry. He turns into a ministry. He's now ministering to the people of God. That ministry, as it continues to grow, will turn into an entire movement or a denomination, as we call it. So we can go from a man to a ministry to a movement or a denomination, as we might call it. And, and then Gideon says, then Gideon shows us where the downfall is. God takes a man. He does something incredible with him. The ministry starts to take place. The movement falls into line. Well, then we're going to set up a monument. We're going to set up a monument to it. Now, let me just put it to you this way. Martin Luther was a man that started a movement, started a ministry that turned into a movement, the Protestant Reformation. John Wesley was a man who started a ministry, who started a movement. It's where we get the Methodist church from. You can look back at the lines of any denomination, any church, and they all start with generally a peep, one person or a couple of people. They begin to minister. The movement takes place. But then if you'll look, if you'll see where the monument comes in, Gideon made this ephod as a monument. We do the same thing. We've done the same thing. What has been the monument of our modern-day churches? Oftentimes, it's the church itself. It's the church building. It's the organization. You see, when the building and the organization stops existing to serve the people, and the people have to serve the organization, that's when it becomes a monument. That's when the monument is put in place. You think of, you look around at some of these old churches. They're beautiful buildings. They're gorgeous buildings, incredible work and craftsmanship gone into them. But they become a monument to what God has done. It was incredible what God was doing when he built it, but at some point it switched, and this church, this building became about the, instead of being about the people, the people were now here to serve the building or the organization. So it works like this. The man, the ministry, the movement, the monument, I like all the M words, it turns into a mausoleum. It's where it dies. It's where it dies. It's where everything just kind of, that, that's where it ends. Because the focus has gone from the people to the organization. The focus has gone from serving the people to serving the building or serving the organization. And when that happens, we're just locking, we're just, it, it, it turns into a mausoleum. Rob, why do we have so many empty, big, old, empty churches in our area? Our churches are closing up left and right around here. You can go, to, the more on the outskirts you go, you find little white churches that have been closed up because there's nobody going to them anymore. And I bet if you look back, it started with the man who started a ministry and a small movement began, erected a monument, and now it turns into a mausoleum. Here's the focus, and here's what, I need, here's what we need to understand. My pastor, Pastor Chuck Smith, when he started Calvary Chapel, was aware of this. And he wanted Calvary Chapel, and he was very vocal about it. He never wanted Calvary Chapel to become a denomination. He never wanted to receive any recognition. He actually said it many times publicly, don't ever name a building after me. Don't ever do anything. When I'm gone, I'm with the Lord. You guys just keep going, whatever he's called you to do. 
He's taking a look back and he, he can see what's taken place in, in movements of the Lord throughout history. Because man always seems to interfere. And we always set up this monument. We build this thing. We have to then maintain this thing. And instead of this thing being the, the very thing that God uses to minister and to in, impact the lives of people, now all of a sudden we need to get people to maintain our thing. And that's when it needs to be turned off. That's where it needs to end. It should stop at that point. My hope and my heart is that our church, right now we exist to serve people. That's what we're here for. I hope we never get to the point where we set up a monument, where we have to look and say, look what we do. Look at our building. Because a lot of times in churches, it's the building. Now, I can say that comfortably because you've seen the front of our building. There's obviously no monument taking place here. But the radio station could become a monument if we're not careful. That could happen to where we're not, we're not serving the people anymore. It's all about building a station or doing something like that. And if it does, the moment something becomes a monument in the work of the Lord, in the ministry of the Lord, you know, the next step, it's going to die. It's going to become a mausoleum. And that's it. So we want to make sure that whatever our ministries are, be careful. It's good to set up a memorial to remember what God's done. But when you set up a monument, that's what Gideon's doing here. I'm going to make this golden ephod. I'm going to put it up. They're going to remember. And I'm sure he was thinking they're going to remember me. Right? Because nobody wants to be forgotten. They're going to remember me. He makes this golden ephod and we read, All Israel played the harlot with it there. It became a snare to Gideon and his house. Gideon, you were doing so well. Midian was subdued. Forty years of peace. And look at verse 29. Then Jerubbabal, that's Gideon, the son of Joash, went and dwelt in his own house. Gideon had 70 sons who were his own offspring, for he had many wives. Gideon didn't want to be a king, but he sure wanted to live like one. That's how a king's lived, multiple wives, 70 sons. And then we read in the very next verse, his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son whose name, whose name he called Abimelech. Does anybody know what a concubine is? Don't think, of a per, don't think of a place. Think of a person. Think of a person. A concubine is simply a secondary or inferior wife. It's a secondary. So I, I have a group of wives, but then I have, not me, I'm talking about Gideon. I don't have any concubines. I only have one wife. But Gideon has a group of wives because no one woman could possibly father 70 children, 70 sons. It doesn't even tell you how many daughters. But then on the side, there's concubines. And concubines, well, they're just, they're secondary or inferior wives. They're mine or they're, they're Gideon's. They belong to the king, but nobody else can mess with them. But they're just, they're just not considered wives. They're, they're considered concubines. That was never God's plan. I like the fact that the Bible is honest about that stuff. I think it says a great deal that the fact that the Bible and the Scripture records the problems that the great men of God had. Gideon obviously had a problem here. Because we can go farther back to the beginning and, and read in Genesis where man was supposed to leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. It's a singular word, not a plural word. It's singular. God never, people look, oh, well, how come Gideon had more wives and David? And no, that was never God's plan. That, that was never God's plan. God still used people in the midst of their sin. I like that too, because that means I don't have to be perfect either. And neither do you. 
God still used people in the midst of their sin. Gideon wasn't supposed to have all these wives, and we're not told how many, but we can, I mean, how many wives do you think you have to have to have 71 sons? I got to imagine quite a few. Solomon had, what, 600 wives or 700 wives, something like that? Some crazy number? That wasn't God's plan. God planned, his plan for a man and a woman to join together and to cleave together. But yet he uses Gideon in his, in his imperfection. He certainly didn't want to be a king, but he had no problem beginning to live like a king. He built an ephod, they worshipped, and the women were coming. Many, many sons, had 70 sons, had a concubine, that's only one that's mentioned here. And then in verse 32, now Gideon of Joash, son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father in Ophrah. So it was, as soon as Gideon was dead, the children of Israel again played the harlot with the bales, or balls, and made Baal Bereth their god. Thus the children of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. Nor did they show kindness to the house of Jerubel, that's Gideon, in accordance with the good he had done for Israel. Way back in the beginning we read, each man did what was right in his own eyes. No right or wrong. Forty years of peace. The nation just right back in to what they were delivered from. It's like getting out of the pig pen, getting cleaned up and jumping back in the mud. It's the same thing. They're they're getting out and they're jumping right back in. Gideon dies at a good old age. But the people, the people, as soon as Gideon was dead, the children of Israel again played the harlot with the false gods. As soon as he was dead. Wow. It doesn't take long to get wrapped up in idolatry. It doesn't take long for an entire people group to get wrapped right back up into the very thing that they were delivered from. Haven't you ever noticed in your own life a sin? It's something that you're trying to overcome. You know what it is. It's an attitude, it's a thought, it's a whatever it is in your life. You try to overcome it. How long till you fall back into it again? Have you ever done the cycle? Lord, I'll never do that again. And you do it again. Lord, I'll never do it again. Lord, forgive me, I'll never do it again. And you feel, fall, that, that's what the nation of Israel is doing. It doesn't take us 40 years. Sometimes it's only a few hours. But they're in this, they're in this cycle. A couple of final thoughts. And we're going to do kind of a short study tonight, just because we're not going to start Abimelech tonight. I love how the, the scripture, I, ho- I love how it portrays the people of God in truly who they were. Because when I look at Gideon, I can see the fact, you know what, Gideon, there is obvious sin in your life. You've got 71 sons and who knows how many wives. But God still used you in a mighty way. God, you didn't have to be perfect. When you look at David, adultery, murder, same thing. God still used you. You didn't have to be perfect. God will still use us. He will still use you. Please don't buy into the notion that you have to be perfect to be used by God. What you have to be to be used by God is obedient and willing to take that step of faith, willing to step out of that area that you say, I don't know if I can do that or not. If I'll be obedient, he'll meet me there. It's when I get out of my strength that I really get to see his strength. 
I'm operating in my strength, I don't really need his strength. I'm doing fine on my own. But I like it how the Bible does it. It portrays, it portrays him accurately. Gideon would again be mentioned for great faith in Hebrews 11 in the hall of faith. He would be referred to. What a man of great faith. Even though they, look what he did. He built an ephod and they worshiped. He'd be remembered for what he did for the Lord. I like that. I think there's a lot of hope in that. And then as we sort of close out on Gideon here, remember back where he started? Way back hiding from the enemy because he was scared to death. And the Lord called. He said, I'll go. And he was obedient, and the Lord used him to deliver the nation Israel from under the hand of the Midianites. God will use ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Don't ever look at something and say, I could never do that. I could never do that. I could never do what so-and-so is doing. Yes, you can. If that's what God's called you to do, you can. Because you'll have his strength and his power to do it. And finally, I like the fact that Gideon, I like his uncertainty with what God was doing. I like the fact that he really questioned God as he struggled, as he said, Lord, is this really something you want me to do? The fleeces, I think it's good because I think that's what we do. When the Lord calls you to step out and, to do, and you do something, and it starts with little things in your life. It'll be a little thing here, a little thing there. But when you finally calls and he puts something on your heart, I want you to do this. If you're not scared to death, there's something, you're not walking in faith. You're not, when, I, when I heard about the radio station today, I was scared to death. I'm like, Lord, how are we going to do this? Oh, who's going to do all this work? How's it all going to happen? How, how, what do we do? And then I realized that brief moment, I went right back like Gideon into my own strength. I have to rely on his strength and rely on him. The Lord's the one that's brought people like Kevin that can do the radio stuff, brought people like Bill, my friend from New Jersey who's advising us on all this. Bill's a radio engineer working for free. He's going to come out and actually put the whole station together for us for free. You know, no charge, no charge. And incredible. He's bringing, the, Lord's do, the Lord is the one bringing all the people, that are, he's putting all the people in place to do all this work. And when I look at the whole thing, I go, oh, I'm scared. To I'm like Gideon. Lord, are you sure? Let's put out a fleece. Let's put out another one. I know you've done six of them. Let's do one more. And he's faithful. He says, no, Rob, keep going. This is what I called you to. In 2006, in prayer, one morning, it was early before the sun comes up, we only have one hill in Palm Beach County. Well, two. There's a dump. The other hill is in a park called Okahili Park where they dug out a lake and they built a big hill there. Okay? You could drive to the top of this hill. So I would go there every morning early to study my Bible, and that's the only time I had to prepare for being a pastor and do my work and all that kind of stuff. And I would sit up there, and I was sitting there praying one morning, and I was asking the Lord about Cumberland. And uh, he put on my heart, and just sort of that still small voice when the Lord sort of speaks to you and something he wants you to do. And he told me very clearly, I want you to do something. He actually said, you're going to do something in radio. And that was it. I never heard another word about it. So that next morning, I had gone to, we had a group of guys that would get together on, in the mornings and have breakfast once a week. And we'd gone together, and I'd talking to the guys. And they knew I was praying about coming to Cumberland. And I said to one of the guys, I said, hey, you know, I said something really weird. I said, the Lord's really kind of put on my heart that we're going to do something in radio in Cumberland. Now, this is 2006. So how many years ago? Seven, eight, nine? Nine years ago, almost. And he goes, really? He goes, what do you think that'll be? I said, I don't know. I don't know what it'll be. 
And so I didn't say anything else about it. So the Lord kept preparing me, and finally I got prepared, and I got ordained, and I got sent out, and I sold our house and all that kind of stuff. We show up in Cumberland. And we're here about, I guess probably about two years, and we had started the Bible study by then, and, you know, things are kind of moving along what you might call slowly at that point. And uh, the buddy of mine from Florida called me up and he said, hey, he said, you said you were going to do something in radio. Why don't you think about getting on the radio and doing, doing some advertising? And I said, you know, I don't think that's what God has. I said, I don't think it's, it's advertising. I don't think it's, it's something else. I don't know what it is. I said, I don't, know, I don't know what it is, but I will know. I'll, I'll know when the time is right. And then in September of 2013, when I was up at the Northeast Pastors Conference and they were sharing with these low-powered FM stations that we could build a station here in Cumberland, that's when the Lord said, this is what I want you to do. Remember I told you back in 2006 that this is the radio thing. If you'd have told me in 2006 you're going to own, the church is going to own a radio station, I thought, no, I thought he meant like I was going to be on the radio. I didn't even like radio. But he said that in 2006. So as we, as we walk forward with this, had we not gotten into the low-powered side of things, we certainly wouldn't be into the high-powered side of things. And it's so cool because he takes these baby steps that I can handle, you know. If he'd have said, in, you know, if it had been 2013 and they said, oh, you need to buy this radio station, you got all this money and you just need to just, just do, I'd have, been, I'd have ran. There's no way. We can't do that, Lord. But that's not the way he does it. He takes these little tiny steps. Will you, will you be faithful with the first step? Will you be faithful in saying you'll, you'll do this radio station? And when I committed to doing the radio station, do you know we had no money to do the radio station? Literally no money. Lord, I'll do it. But you have to provide the money. I'll, I'll do the work. You provide the money. And literally within, I don't know, a couple of months, as I started talking about it, people came forward. I want to help. I'll help with that. Let me help. What do you, what do you, how much do you need? What can I, where can I help? I want to give this much. I want to give that much. It was like, wow, are you kidding me? But all, I, I say all of that to say, I had to take the first step before we get to the last step. Because if I'd have taken from step one to step 10, I'd have never taken that jump. It would have been too much. I'd have, looked at the, I'd have looked at the impossible and said, there's no way that could be done. That's what Gideon was doing. When he looked at, you're going to use me to conquer the entire army of the Midianites? Look, Gideon, just blow the trumpet. Blow the trumpet. I'll bring the people. Gideon blows the trumpet, the people come. That's when he goes to throw out the fleeces. Lord, now what do I do? They're all here. That's the way the Lord works. One small step at a time. So I want to encourage you tonight, whatever step, wherever you're at, wherever, whatever it is that he's doing in your heart, and if you're seeking him, he's going to be working. Take the fall, small step first. Take the little step. Just do that little thing that he's put on your heart today. I can tell you, when you the more you do it, the easier it gets, the scarier it gets, because you start working outside of your own ability. But what happens is it just causes you to worship like you wouldn't believe. It causes you to just go, wow, Lord, I cannot believe you're doing this. I cannot believe that our church is in the process of buying a radio station for half of what they were asking and a third of what it's worth. It's no other explanation but a miracle. It couldn't be done any other way. And God has provided every single need along the way. Yet there's still part of me that goes, oh, Lord, what do we do next? I don't know what to do. I don't know how to do this. How do I do it? And he reminds me, just be obedient to the next step. Just do the next thing, and I will make it happen. Aren't you glad that we're part of a church that is being led by the Lord 
that we are doing things that we couldn't possibly conceive to do on our own. We are not doing church planting right at all. We're in the wrong neighborhood. We have the wrong demographics, the wrong kind of building. We're doing it all wrong by all the church planting books. But yet God is being faithful to what he's called us to do. There is nothing better than walking with God in obedience. You get to say, wow, Lord, look what you're doing. It's absolutely amazing. So I'm blessed to be a part of it. I hope you guys see it. And uh, it's only the beginning. I can't wait to see what, I I just can't wait to see what he's going to do next. I really can't. And uh, I I like that. I'm just to repeat that real quick. Man, ministry, movement, monument, mausoleum. Let's never set up a monument. Let's never make this place about the place. Let's always make it about the people. If it's about the people, the movement will continue. When we set up the monument, whether it's a building or a radio station or any other thing, if that becomes who we are, we're only a step away from the mausoleum. We'll be on the way. We're, we're dying. We're on the way out. So you guys keep me into that. You hold me to it. If you see a monument going up, you need to tell me. because We need to change that and correct it. It's always about the people. Amen? Father, we thank you so much for the work that you're doing. Thanks for letting us be a part of it. Forgive us for our doubting. Lord, we sometimes doubt and wonder what you're doing, if you're doing anything at all. Lord, may we be patient. May we know that waiting is doing something. May we be obedient, Lord. Father, may you bless us. May you make your face shine upon us. May we walk in your grace every day. Not believing the lies of the enemy, but living a victorious life in Christ Jesus. In Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen.